0: Ocean advocate is Chad Nelson. Chad is the CEO of Surfrider Foundation, a grassroots nonprofit dedicated to protecting and preserving the world's oceans, waves, and beaches. Hi, Chad, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Allison, thanks for having me.
0: Very excited to have you here today. And to give our listeners a little bit of background, Chad and I were recently connected via Andy Stern. You guys might remember from a few weeks back. Andy was on the show as the founder of Smartfin. He was talking all about his awesome initiative of Smartfin. And he put me in contact with Chad because Smartfin and Surfrider will be collaborating or are collaborating currently on kind of distributing those Smartfins to the Surfrider community. So it's awesome connection that they've got going on. And it's great that Andy put me in touch with Chad today. So thanks, Andy, for that, if you're listening. <laughs> um, so Chad, Surfrider to me... Is a really standout organization. It's been around for a long time, I know. And there's a lot of other environmental organizations out there, nonprofits, doing similar things that are all doing great work. But Surfrider always seems to kind of stand out amongst that crowd. Can you give us a little bit of background on how Surfrider came to be, kind of the history of it and it standing out?
1: Yeah, sure. So the Surfrider Foundation was founded in 1984 at Malibu Beach, you know, a famous surfing beach in Southern California. It was inspired by an interesting collection of guys, a surfer named Lance Carson, a surfer, an aerospace engineer named Glenn Henning, and an environmental advocate surfer named Tom Pratt. It was inspired actually by the 1984 LA Olympics and some problems they were having at the beach in Malibu with the management of an inlet there that was affecting the waves and water pollution. And they decided to get active and uh, do something about it. And you know it was really kind of a sea change for the surfing community who you know previously had been kind of looked at as these dropouts of society, people who weren't really engaged and uh, they wanted to turn that around and they were effective in Malibu and from there, the idea of surfers getting active and getting involved in coastal issues really has expanded and blown up and you know now the Surf Rider Foundation has eighty four chapters. In the United States, tens of thousands of activists around the country, and we've, or even international, and there's Surfrider Europe, which is quite large, and uh, we've got affiliates in Brazil and Australia and Japan. And so, this idea that those guys sort of came up with in 1984 is really uh, caught fire, which is great to see, you know, and uh, I think some of the reasons why Surfrider is particularly effective is, you know, it's really about empowering ocean users, whether it's surfers or swimmers or people who walk the beach who live in coastal communities and tapping into their passion for the coasts and helping them transform that into protection. So it's about getting the people out on the coast engaged in solving the problem and the grassroots nature of it, and there's people in coastal communities all over the country doing that. And uh, our job at the headquarters where I work is to provide them with the tools, the science, the policy, the organizing techniques to um, be effective advocates. But I think it's the fact that it's people in communities doing the work that really separates Surfrider from other groups. And we're able to use this network effect of having all those activists in those chapters around the country work together and share information we can scale that work up from the local level to the state level, to the regional level, and to the national level. So um, the model for Surfrider was developed long before I took over, but I, I think it's a really effective one.
0: So you were actually the environmental director of Surfrider for 16 years before you became the CEO a few years ago. We just talked about kind of the beginnings of Surfrider. I want to ask you about the beginnings of your relationship with the ocean and your investment in wanting to protect the ocean.
1: Yeah, definitely. I I had the great fortune of being brought up in Laguna Beach on the beach as a kid. So um, my dad taught oceanography and was a ocean guy, a certified scuba instructor. So my brother and I grew up on the beach, we were in the water almost every day. You know, I went on to become a lifeguard and uh, was surfing and diving and fishing and doing all those things. And so I was really, I feel really privileged and lucky to have been brought up in that way. And during that time, I really, Orange County in Southern California blew up from a development standpoint. And all of a sudden, these issues of coastal erosion and water pollution started to impact the coast and oceans that I love. When I started spearfishing as a kid, you know, the older guys in town said, oh, it's too bad. The ocean's fished out. There's not that many fish left anymore. So I started to see those problems and, uh, you know, decided I wanted to do something about it. I went to college on the East Coast, studied, uh, you know, environmental studies and geology and was actually kind of focused on the land. It wasn't until I was looking at grad school and I found this program at Duke University, the Nicholas School of the Environment, called Coastal Environmental Management, that the light bulb went on. And I, I really, for the first time, recognized that I could like, match my passion for the ocean with my sort of career goals and my aspirations to protect the environment. Um, and so I went to that program and learned a lot about coastal management and you know, how we, we can effectively manage and protect our coastlines. While I was in grad school, this was a long time ago in 1985, I actually got an internship as a grad student at Surfrider Foundation for the summer and learned about this place and loved it. And it was a few years after I got out of grad school that I was lucky enough to get a job here working on the environmental policy side of things and eventually led the environmental policy department at Surfrider. And that group of people is really supporting our, the issues and making sure Surfrider is science based, is advocating for effective policies and supporting our network on the issues we work on, which are beach access, clean water, water quality issues, sort of coastal erosion, coastal preservation, um, plastic pollution, and ocean conservation issues. So I kind of led that team. And I I had that job, as you mentioned, for 16 years, for a really long time. And it was great. During that time, Surfrider really grew. I think when I started, we had 24 chapters. Now we have 84 chapters. And then about a little over a year and a half ago, I was lucky enough to get the CEO job. So it's been a, a life of loving the ocean, a real interest in finding ways to uh, protect it and motivate others to give back and protect the place that we all love so much. And uh, at the same time, kind of a mail room to the CEO. I went from lowly grad student intern to the head guy. So I, I feel really lucky. It's been a wild ride, and I feel really proud to be uh, leading Surfrider, which is just such a great organization.
0: Agreed. So as a CEO, and, and also as the environmental director, you've been with Riders for so long, like you said, you've gotten to be a part of and also really spearhead some really awesome and important initiatives. And I want to touch on a few of them. First of which is you are very influential in establishing a marine reserve in Puerto Rico. Can you describe kind of what the process is like in establishing a marine reserve somewhere? I mean, obviously, it's extremely important and great to protect, you know, a big, large area of the ocean. Is something I'm very interested in. I know a lot of my listeners are as well. Can you describe what that process is like?
1: Definitely. And, you know, it's really interesting that the process in Puerto Rico kind of came from a, a unique place. It was in this town, Rincon, Puerto Rico. It was the first marine reserve on the mainland. This town, Rincon, is a beautiful little coastal town amazing Elkhorn coral reefs, great surfing, and a, kind of a great little tropical tourist town. It was actually threatened by overdevelopment, and there was a number of giant condo projects that were planned right on the beach. They were going to be inside the coastal zone, in the areas that were going to be prone to erosion, and also the grading that was going on to build these condos was going to cover these beautiful coral reefs and silt. So our first objective when we came into this town was actually to kind of stop these inappropriate, illegal condo projects. But in doing so, we learned so much about the amazing natural resources in this community, including some of the healthiest Elkhorn coral reefs in the United States waters, that we ended up developing. We stopped the condo projects through sort of classic grassroots advocacy. But then we, we were like, okay, well, we can't just fight bad development forever. What's the larger conservation goal for this community? And we ended up working with the locals in the community, other environmental groups, the Puerto Rico Sea Grant and some of the state agencies to develop sort of a ridges to reef plan. So what can we do on land and this watershed to help protect the coastal areas? And, you know, that has such a big impact on the, the coral reefs. So and what can we do offshore to protect the coral reefs? And so we came up with this vision of creating this marine reserve. In Puerto Rico and in other places, you know, there's a couple different ways you can establish marine reserves. You can do them sort of administratively. You know, here in California, that would be through the Department of Fish and Wildlife. In Puerto Rico, it was through the Department of Ecology. Or you can pass a law, and that's what ultimately happened. A local representative in two thousand four put forth a bill to establish the Reserva Marina Tres Palmas, the Trace Palmas Marine Reserve. And that legislation was passed and and it really became a source of pride for that community. But, you know, as you know, establishing a Marine Reserve is only the first step. The next step was to actually build a management plan. So we got a couple grants from NOAA Coral Reef Program, and uh we spent the next four or five years building out a community-based management plan to ensure that uh, the community was engaged and supportive, and we had all different kinds of stakeholders in that process. And uh ultimately put forth a a management plan and set up a community-based steering committee to effectively manage this marine reserve. It was really a grassroots campaign. It really was a result of coalition of small local environmental groups in Puerto Rico, some big national groups like Environmental Defense Fund was one of our partners, and our concerted grassroots outreach and education program where we were talking to the schools, to the tourism association, to the local fishermen who were really key to getting support for this project. And, you know, we collected thousands of signatures in the town and ultimately this legislator who decided, hey, there's enough community support here. I can establish this legislation. So, that was the story behind it, and it's still there today, being effectively managed. And uh, it's a it's a project that we're really proud of. It's also one of the first Marine Reserves that kind of included protecting surfing and uh, recreation as as part of the goals beyond the obviously important conservation goals of protecting these amazing elkhorn corals.
0: Another project that you were really kind of the inventor of that you've worked a lot on. and very important as well, is this field of surfonomics. Yeah. Can you describe to our listeners
1: what surfonomics is? Yeah, definitely. So surfonomics is really sort of the economic study of surf tourism and surf recreation. And it's interesting because it's actually connected to the project in Puerto Rico. When we were trying to establish the Marine Reserve, in the very beginning of the project, the fishermen, which is often, you know, have the most to lose or most at stake, and then the community felt like this conservation project was actually going to hurt economic development in Rincon, we ended up consulting with a resource economics professor named Dr. Linwood Pendleton, and he came out and he did this little rapid economic assessment of the town of Rincon and essentially showed that it was the surfing community, the diving community, and sort of the outdoor ecotourism community that was really driving the economic engine of this small town and so you really need to protect it the beaches the water quality and these offshore coral reefs to continue to build up the economic force of the community and so instead of it being the environment versus the economy it was the environment is the economy and that report just was a game changer in our campaign it really turned people around so a lot of people who are like who are these conservationists, they are not. They don't have the interest of the community in mind, they just want to sell these coral reefs for their own sake, really started to realize, oh, protecting these coral reefs is actually good for us and our community and our economic development and our local business. That was like a wake-up call for me, that this use of economics can be a really powerful tool in and, and conservation efforts and really trying to understand the value of natural resources. And so it was a couple years later after that campaign that actually – Linwood Pendleton, the same guy we consulted, talked me into going back to school at UCLA. And I joined this environmental science and engineering program and studied economics. And for my doctoral thesis, I wanted to look at the economics of surfing, of surfonomics. And so I spent about four years studying surfers in California, particularly at Trestles, which is a surf spot right near Surfrider's office. It's also one of the most popular and arguably best surf spots in the United States. And it was under threat from a big... Private toll road project that was going to destroy the watershed that ultimately makes the wave. And so I started, I interviewed about 1,300 surfers. I asked them questions about where they came from, their demographics, their spending behavior in San Clemente. You know, and what I found was sort of two things there's something called economic impact, which is spending. So about 84% of the surfers surfing at trestles come from outside the city of San Clemente. And when they come to San Clemente to go surfing, they spend about forty bucks a day on average between gas, restaurants, surf shops, and if you add that up, there's about three hundred and thirty thousand surfers a year visit Trestles. You know, it's about eight to thirteen million dollars a year in spending was taking place in the city of San Clemente that otherwise wouldn't if that surf spot wasn't there, and so it really demonstrated to the city of San Clemente that. This surf spot at Trestles is a little gem for them, and it's attracting people from all over Southern California, you know, and the world, but that was a smaller percentage of the population, to visit. And when they come to surf there, they're spending money in their town. So outside of its values aesthetically and inherently as one of these great surf spots, it also has, like, this hard value to the community. And so that was also, like, a powerful argument for protecting the surf spot Interestingly enough, there's another guy named Neil Lazaro, who's an Australian guy, doing the same thing in Australia at the same time I was. And we ended up meeting up, and we were kind of the first two guys to do this stuff for surfing. And now there's surfonomic studies all over the place. There's a great group called Save the Waves based up in San Francisco area that's setting up world surfing reserves around the world and they're using surfonomics as one of their sort of ways of assessing these spots. So it's grown since these studies about 10 years ago and it's cool to see.
0: Yeah, it's definitely cool to see. I mean, I think surfonomics can be applied to any kind of activity that people do outdoors, enjoying nature, the ocean, whatever it may be. And I think that a lot of people around the world are probably using a similar model to what you kind of created with Surfonomics, and it's really, I think, really impactful because blending the environment with economics is a big answer to a lot of our problems today. So thank you for, for you know coming up with that and having the economics background and the surfing background and all those things to bring that together because it's really, really great. Another topic I want to touch on... That I know Surfrider has been working on a lot, kind of in more recent years, is climate change and sea level rise. Yep. Um, Can you talk about focusing on climate change and sea level rise, kind of the science behind it, and the approaches that you guys at Surfrider are taking as of now?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. So, you know, obviously what's happening is climate change is warming the planet, and that's causing two different impacts that are creating sea level rise. One is thermal expansion. So literally as the ocean gets warmer, there's so much water in the ocean that if it just ticks up a couple of tenths of a degree, the water in the ocean actually expands slightly, but that is a measurable increase in the sea level. And the other, that's the more obvious one, is the glaciers and Greenland and other places are melting and pouring fresh water into the ocean and filling them up and you know, of course, this has happened over geologic time between ice ages time and time again. But what's happening now is we're making that the climate is warming so quickly. And, you know, it was been in the news this last week, actually, you know, the warmest June, the warmest May ever recorded. And so we're accelerating that sea level rise around the globe. You know, that's going to have an impact on our coasts and it's going to cause coastal erosion. It could drown coral reefs and a number of things. And it's going to threaten to flood coastal areas. And we see this when we get like El Nino on the West Coast, these big storms like Superstorm Sandy that hit the East Coast a few years back. You know, and coastal erosion is one of these natural phenomenon and everything's fine until human development gets in the way. So whether it's a, somebody's house is threatened, we see bluffs erode, sometimes it's a road or a parking lot or something, you know, that coastal erosion starts to impact. It's actually a sort of our response to that coastal erosion, whether it's putting up seawalls or filling beaches with sand, something often called beach nourishment, you know, that we started to see the consequences of that sea level rise. And these are issues like in the last hundred years or so, sea levels risen about eight inches, six to eight inches. And that's been enough. It doesn't sound like a lot, but that's been enough to cause a number of the coastal erosion issues that we have around the country. You know, about 86% of the California coast is under some state of coastal erosion, and we've armored about 10 percent. We put up seawalls, which are like rock walls to stop that coastal erosion. The problem is when you put in those seawalls, it may protect the the land behind it by kind of stopping the coastal erosion. But as the sea level continues to rise, it squeezes out the beach and you lose the beach in front of it. So you end up with ocean, a wall and then land and no, no beach, which is bad for tourism, bad for surfing, bad for coastal habitats, bad for seabirds birds and sea turtles and marine mammals that require the, the beach as an important part of their habitat. So that has been the challenge. And Surfrider has been sort of fighting these coastal erosion issues for, for about 30 years in a very reactive way, which is, you know, coastal erosion affects the coast. Someone tries to put in one of these seawalls. We fight them and we try to stop it. And, you know, in some cases we are effective in doing that. In other cases we aren't. But we've realized as like this discussion about sea level rise and climate change has continued, that the strategy we need to get into is something more proactive. So we're really focused on what we're calling coastal adaptation, which is, okay, we know sea level is going to rise. We can sort of predict what that impact is going to be along our coastlines. Let's start making some intelligent choices about what we want the coast to look like in the next 50 to 100 years and start building towards that. So in some places like downtown Manhattan, It may make sense to armor it and put up walls because there's not a lot of beach there anyway. It's pretty industrial, and there's nowhere really to move New York City. Some places it's going to make sense to armor the coast. San Francisco Airport might be another one. In other places, it may make sense to nourish beaches with sand and fill them in, and that's fine. It has some questionable ecological impacts because you're burying sort of the natural beach. It can affect surfing beaches and create some hazards for swimmers because the beaches tend to be steep. But most importantly, when you try to do beach nourishment, it's really expensive to pump sand on the beach. There's a Mm -hmm. limited amount of sand out there and you got to do it forever because the coast is going to be kind of eroding. Well, and then the third option, which is actually the most sustainable, but the most politically challenging is to actually move back from the, the coast and they call it managed retreat. And there's already some examples of this at Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, a very famous lighthouse in North Carolina. A few years back, they actually moved the lighthouse a half uh, half mile back from the point because it was being impacted by coastal erosion. Just over the last couple of months up on Cape Cod, they actually moved uh, some structures in a parking lot back from the coast. And there's another great example up in Ventura in California called Surfer's Beach, where the county fairgrounds moved their parking lot back from the beach and kind of re- re-establish the natural dunes. So those are really your three options. Armor, beach nourishment, move back. And uh, a good coastal adaptation plan will say, okay, what do we want our coast to look like in 50 years? How can we execute those three different strategies to sort of get where we want to go and start planning for that? So that's just starting to happen around the country, and it's pretty encouraging because otherwise... The reactive strategy of waiting for a storm and putting up a wall is certainly not going to be good for our coasts. So um, Surfrider has really been focused on ensuring that this concept of coastal adaptation is being understood and being promoted in local state plans and then getting involved in those plans at the community level to make sure that sort of the values that we have as a coastal conservation organization and a, and a group that likes to recreate on the coast are, are well represented.
0: In talking about kind of those three options of a more proactive approach to coastal erosion and sea level rise, what about raising cities? I mean, I know that cities have been raised in the past due to other issues, like Chicago was raised, you know, a mm-hmm. hundred years ago because of sewage issues or yep. whatever. And I, I think that Miami is doing some raising of roads or something like yeah. that. Is that kind of another option? Yeah, yeah.
1: No, that's a good, that's a really good point. I, I guess you could kind of put that in this sort of like managed retreat bucket in some senses. It's kind of a hybrid, but you're right. It's a good point. You know, I think by trying to raise cities certainly or raise roads, I think in some cases you can probably buy a lot of time. So, you know, these coastal erosion events happen sort of episodically and, uh, Oftentimes, you know, a big storm like Sandy will come through, wash a bunch of stuff away, and then we rebuild it. And then, you know, it takes another 30 years before the next storm hits. And so, you know, if you raise the elevations of structures so they don't flood, or actually, in some cases, they're raising things high enough so that the water can naturally pass under them. That's a great strategy, I think, in in the short term. So it may avoid damage from storms in the short term. But, you know, depending on the on the coastline it may not be a long term strategy but you're it's a really good point and it's a really important thing to do at least in the inter- interim you know we're not going to abandon the jersey shore anytime soon but if we raise the structures and are smart about it we can certainly minimize the damage when the next big storm comes
0: so chad you mentioned that there's 84 chapters mostly across the US, but also a lot of chapters internationally, like you mentioned Europe and Australia and other places. Can you tell listeners how they can get involved with Surfrider? Because like you said, it's a grassroots campaign. You have volunteers. That's really kind of the engine of Surfrider. How How and why should listeners get involved with Surfrider?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So like, as you mentioned, Surfrider Frederick really is this grassroots volunteer-based organization. So our 84 chapters out there around the country, and we're in almost every coastal state with the exception of a couple of Gulf states, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, all those chapters are run by volunteers, you know, with some regional staff around the country to help support them and, you know, our sort of science policy team, legal team here in the office. And so the, the chapters are people who in coastal communities who care about their coasts and want to get engaged. And, you know, and we do things like beach cleanups. We plant what we call ocean-friendly gardens to minimize pollution from the landscape. We have a new program called Ocean-Friendly Restaurants, trying to get restaurants to stop using single-use plastics. At any one time, there's about 100 campaigns, whether that's banning single-use plastic bags, fighting a bad condo project like i talked about in puerto rico or trying to pass good protective legislation or these coastal adaptation plans and so um if listeners want to get involved in the united states or internationally you know they can go to surfrider.org our website and from there you can find a a chapter in your area they have facebook they've got email lists, and they often hold monthly meetings you can go turn out and uh Meet the folks that are involved in the in the chapters and find a way that to plug in that makes sense for you. It could be talking to kids in schools. It could be getting involved politically. It could be doing stuff out at the beach. There's so many ways that folks who care about the coast can plug in and help. And you know, I have the good fortune and the luck of being sort of at the central hub, so I get to meet these chapter activists all over the country, and I can say it's just an amazing group of people. They're active. They're of all ages. They share this common love for the coasts. They recreate in a bunch of different ways, whether it's paddleboarding or surfing or going for walks on the beach with their dogs. It's just a cool cool group of people who are actually making a difference and being really effective. So I encourage people to get involved. They can start at our website or our social media. And uh, from there, they can find a chapter in their, in their area.
0: And really quickly, what if, someone is living in an area of the U.S. or of the world that does not have a Surfrider chapter already instated, what's it like to start your own Surfrider chapter?
1: Yeah, so you can start a Surfrider chapter. There's a guy named Ed Mazzarella who's in our office here, and you can find him on our website. He's our director of chapters, and so he's in charge of helping charter new chapters. Um, and we have a process that a sort of startup chapter will go through to be certified by our board. There's chartered. So there's an official process to do that, you know, and also if you don't live, even if you don't live in a coastal area, you can connect with the chapter in your favorite part of the world. Some people go to the same area for their vacation one week a year and care about that spot. And that's sort of the beauty of social media is there's a lot of ways you can stay connected to that community Engage in issues in those local communities, even if you're not there year-round.
0: Listeners, on that note, I definitely recommend that you you start following Surfrider on social media. They have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and I'm sure a whole host of other social media sites. Um, and then there's also always individual social media sites for different chapters, like Chad mentioned. So follow the... Overarching branch of Surfrider and also get involved, connect with your local Surfrider chapter, or if there's not one near you, you can find a way to connect somehow on social media, like Chad said. So I'll be linking to their Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram when I post this episode, and I will also link to their website, surfrider.org, so you guys can go on there, find your local chapter, and just learn more about what Chad and I talked about and all the other amazing things that Surfrider is doing. that, would take a long time to talk about. So, Chad, I want to thank you so much for all the positive change that you're creating for the ocean and that Surfrider is creating for the ocean. It's really incredible the change that you guys actually create. And I want to thank you very much for that on behalf of myself and I'm sure my listeners as well. And I want to thank you for being on the show today. I very much so enjoyed talking
1: to you. Hey, Allison, thanks so much for having me. It's been fun talking to you and I appreciate the opportunity to get the word out about Surfrider because at the end of the day that's what it is it's just a numbers game the more people we get involved as volunteers the more effective we are so I really appreciate it.
0: You just heard Chad Nelson CEO of Surfrider Foundation a grassroots nonprofit dedicated to protecting and preserving our world's oceans waves and beaches. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast visit my website at allisonrandolph.com and tune into next week's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.